Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of November 9th. Pull up a chair. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the likely nominees to Fed leadership positions expected soon and what they may mean for the path of credit and swap spreads going forward. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Okay, Dan, it's been two weeks since our last high-quality spreads edition of Macro Horizons here after a monthly podcast with the whole team last week. Why don't you get us caught up on the path of spreads in the past couple weeks? Yeah, so not too much to get caught up on. Spreads have been pretty range-bound. So in the Bloomberg Barclays Index, spreads over the past six months have been in an 11 basis point range from 80 basis points to 91 basis points. We are right in the middle of that range at 86 basis points. We've seen a little bit of spread compression. That's probably the operative theme going on in the market. But with respect to the broad credit spread indices, we're really bouncing around you know, that 11 basis point range, but even more specifically over the past couple of weeks, a much narrower band of about three to four basis points. And a little bit of outperformance is probably not terribly surprising after the Fed came out. And in my view, it was about as dovish as they possibly could have been, particularly at a meeting where they announced the tapering of asset purchases. And obviously, treasury yields have stabilized and actually come down a bit. So giving just a little more confidence in risk sentiment here. So a little bit of outperformance, not terribly surprising. But I don't think there's been anything to this point that has changed my view on credit. I still think spreads are extremely rich and likely to move wider You know, in the course of the next few months at some point, just migrate to a higher trading plateau, just given the backdrop with some inflationary fears. Other factors we'll talk about here on this podcast, but I guess I'll kick it to you. Has anything developed in the past couple of weeks that material changed your view? No, I think the medium term path of spreads is going to be dictated by the path of inflation. So I think if you're an investor who isn't too concerned about inflation, you know, it might make sense to add positions here. I just think over the next few quarters, inflation is going to remain a threat. And I think there's going to be bouts of some risk-off tone. I think we're going to see spreads just face a more challenging environment as there are expectations for a more hawkish path of Fed policy. Even if those expectations aren't sustained, we're just going to see more volatility in credit spreads. And then the current level, which is just a few basis points off of all-time lows, isn't really justified by that amount of volatility. Yeah, and sure, it's easy for us strategists to sit here and say, like, we don't like the path of credit spreads or we don't like the outlook for spreads here in the near term. It's a lot harder in actuality to, quote unquote, underweight credit. But having said that, even just taking a step up in quality may make sense here, just given spread relationships across the IG spectrum. I mean, if you look at a chart of triple B spreads, say, compared to A or double A spreads, we're near historical tights now. Just before walking in here, I updated the chart for triple Bs compared to the double A slash A index, and it was only 52 basis points. The low going back to the financial crisis was 50. So we're right at the bottom there, and that makes sense after the compression trade that's been sort of the theme of 2021. But even setting aside the outlook for the next few months, fundamentals haven't necessarily been supporting that. 
Yeah, Dan, so despite some positive fundamentals in the market, downgrades have actually outpaced upgrades in the IG market this year from the standpoint of face value. We've had $485 billion in face value downgraded this year within IG and $387 billion upgraded. And then within that, most of the upgrades have been concentrated from A's to double A's, whereas there have been relatively more downgrades between the triple B and single A space. Yeah, putting it in numbers, we've seen net upgrades from A to AA of $39 billion year to date and net upgrades from triple B to A of just over $10 billion. So, I mean, we're not talking massive, massive numbers here, but it's still a fundamental trend worth highlighting when we combine it with our outlook for the next couple months where inflation is likely to dominate the market's attention. And if we're looking at things from an inflationary standpoint, I think you want to be toward the upper end of the credit spectrum because an inflation environment may not necessarily be a very good thing for lower rated credits. I mean, there certainly is an argument that a balance sheet that's more debt laden will arguably benefit from inflation because obviously that's not as bad of a thing when there's heavy inflation. But there's also a little subcomponent that I always try to keep on my radar when I'm thinking about credit, and that is the presence of zombie corporations. This was a big theme in the market last year. Obviously, the quote-unquote zombie metrics have improved greatly in the past year with the recovery in corporate earnings. But still, even as recently as most recent earnings in Q3, one in six U.S. corporations still qualifies as a quote-unquote zombie or does not have sufficient EBIT to cover interest expense in a given quarter. Yeah, and within the IG market, that's obviously more concentrated within the triple Bs. And so as you have triple Bs, which are much more debt-laden, all else equal than single A's and double A's, there's just more rollover risk here. And if we do see inflation pick up and start to feed through on a more sustained basis to higher interest rates and wider credit spreads, that's going to pose a more fundamental risk to the lower end of the credit spectrum within IG. And when you read through some of these corporate earnings in the third quarter, a lot of the more retail or consumer goods companies, when talking about inflation, mentioned the pricing power that they have given the inelasticity of demand. And that's something that I think has played a big role in the strength of corporate earnings in Q3. But were the economy to start to slow down a little bit, I think some of that pricing power would dissipate and that could cause inflation to have more of a negative impact on bottom lines. Yeah. And so maybe cutting to the chase here, maybe this is just a bit of a more in-depth way of looking at a actually relatively basic topic, which is just given the risks that we perceive on the horizon, you want to be moving up in credit or underweight credit, whatever that looks like to the individual manager, just on the expectation that we're going to have a wider trading plateau, nothing outsized here, but a more attractive opportunity to set carry positions in the new year at likely wider spreads. Now, backing up here, Dan, I guess we should focus more near term here on just what's going on in the market these days. And we have a weird holiday coming up here on Thursday. So it's a bit of a weird week. There's not a lot going on, I would say. But there is one storyline that we might get some clarity on this week, and that is who's going to be leading the Fed. We obviously have talked a few times here about some of the key positions on the Fed that need new nominations with terms expiring here. And obviously, the big two are the chairman role, as well as the vice chair of supervision. And Biden told us last week that we should expect announcements on this, quote, fairly soon. So as we transition the conversation to this topic, why don't you just get us caught up on what the betting markets are telling us about who's likely to fill these seats? Yeah, so up until last week, it seemed like Powell was the odds-on favorite to be reappointed Fed chair. His odds since then have dipped a little bit as headlines came out indicating that when Brainerd was at the White House, she was actually interviewing for the Fed chair position and not the vice chair for supervision. 
As of the recording of this podcast, Powell's odds to be reappointed Fed chair are an implied 69% with Brainerd taking the rest of the 31% odds implied by predictit.org. And 69% for Powell, that's about as low as they've gotten since mid-October when some headlines around his equity trade started making the round. So the market has lost some degree of confidence in the idea that Powell is going to be renominated chair. And looking at the composition of the board, there is some reason to think that maybe Brainerd would get the nod. Yeah, and even as of last Friday, Powell's odds were at 86%. So it was viewed pretty near certainty that he was going to be reappointed. At least on my end, I'm still expecting Powell to be renominated. I mean, we talked about this a bit on the last podcast, I think, so I don't want to spend too much time here. But we talked a bit about how the Biden administration has a lot on its plate heading into the end of the year, debt ceiling, budget, not to mention the fate of whatever this social spending bill is going to look like. And Republicans have already made clear that they will support a renomination of Powell. And that's not because they love Powell. It's because they think that any other potential chairman will be even less friendly toward conservatives if they don't support Powell. So Powell just seems like a shoe-in nomination and one that won't ruffle any feathers at a time when Biden's approval rating is the lowest of any president since Harry Truman, except for Donald Trump at this point in his presidency. And it just it seems like he would not want to ruffle any feathers with this nomination. And actually, looking at the composition of the Federal Reserve, there's another reason to think that Powell may have a good chance of being renominated. Yeah. So even if Powell is reappointed Fed chair, Biden has three spots on the board that he needs to fill. If Powell is replaced with Brainerd and Powell would likely step down from the board, even though he doesn't have to, it's possible that the outgoing Fed chair could stay on the board for the remainder of his term. That would be breaking with tradition. So more likely than not, Powell would leave the Fed, leaving four open spots on the Fed board. It's pretty understaffed right now. And so if we are ultimately proven right and the betting markets, their favorite currently is proven right, we'll get a renomination for Powell sometime soon. And then I would think it'd be basically a slam dunk that Brainerd is given the vice chair a supervision role. And that's where I think we should focus for the rest of this podcast because the potential for more regulation coming is one of the factors in our long-term view on the market that makes us not necessarily love the level of credit spreads here. And if and when Brainerd is confirmed as the vice chair of supervision, I think some of the wheels of regulation could start to turn rather quickly. We've seen a few reports coming out in just the past few weeks that imply that the board is sort of set for some pretty significant sweeping changes coming in financial markets once they are enacted. And so I think for the balance of the podcast, we can just talk about some of the main ones and what they may mean for our markets that we cover. And really, I think there are three that we should cover from a high level. And the first one is likely reform coming from money market funds and other quote-unquote non-bank financial intermediaries. The Fed has been dropping breadcrumbs on this avenue of inflation for a while here, really for the better, better part of the past year, after a lot of the blame for what happened in March of 2020 with the liquidity squeeze was put at the feet of money market funds and other non-bank financial intermediaries. So I guess let's start there, Dan. What are some of the reform options they're looking at for this sector? Yeah, so I agree with you. I think money market reform is going to be a key factor in the new regulatory regime, whoever takes over as the Fed's vice chair of supervision. And the real issue with what happened in March of 2020 is that the Fed had to step in to combat these redemptions that were happening with prime money market funds. So most regulation would probably focus on how to stem another quote-unquote run on money market funds. One of the possible solutions that's been floated has been swing pricing, which would essentially eliminate the first mover advantage of any withdrawals from money market funds. So if on any given day, X investors tried to redeem their shares, 
they would all redeem them at the same price. So that there was no, so that there was no incentive to be the first one to redeem your shares. And further, it would treat investors that stay in the funds equally as well. So it wouldn't be those that got out get a better price, and those who opt to keep their money in bear the cost of those redemptions. And this was something that we saw in acute stress last year after the 2016 money market reforms actually incentivized a run-like behavior in money markets due to the optional imposition of liquidity gates and fees that was put in in the 2016 round of money market reform. The market was aware of those, and to avoid them, there was actually more of an impetus to be a first mover. So they're trying to eliminate that. Swing pricing is one method they've talked about. Other options put forth have been the potential for capital buffers or a minimum balance of risk. For money market funds specifically here, though, I think any of these reform options are quite game-changing because you know what the function of a money market fund is. It is supposed to be a very liquid place to place your investments that can be liquidated very, very quickly. Any of the options we've discussed here work against that. And so, I mean, I think we could be looking at potentially the end of domestic prime money market funds as we know them. I mean, this shift has already been in place in 2021 with some of the major prime funds voluntarily redesignating as government-only funds. The writing's sort of been on the wall to the major prime funds, and assets have dropped to you know pretty low levels compared to historicals compared to the historical experience. So we're moving that direction of, of the prime money fund complex in the U.S. changing or disappearing is the way we know it now. But it's also important to note here that this round of money market reform will not likely just impact domestic prime money market funds. The Federal Reserve is working in conjunction with the FSB, an international standard-setting body that will look to apply the same standards to offshore money market funds and even, and now transitioning the conversation a bit toward non-bank financial intermediaries, ultra-short bond funds, and other quote-unquote cash-like vehicles that invest in wholesale funding. And and it's an important point because commercial paper is outstanding. While it's nothing like it was pre-financial crisis, commercial paper outstanding now is you know close to the highest levels we've had since 2010. And so, Dan, if we do get these reforms, it seems like we're going to, what is the impact on the markets we cover from your point of view? Well, there's a lot of them, but I think with respect to rates and spreads, they would likely lead to wider spreads. Anything LIBOR, like any measure of a unsecured term funding rate, would necessarily move higher if there was more restrictions on prime money market funds. So, for example, Bisbee, once LIBOR goes away, that would likely start to trade at wider spreads to other short-term rates. Also, if we had a reduction in prime fund assets, corporations would be incentivized to find other ways of funding, most likely by funding further out the curve. So heavier issuance, probably in corporate bond markets, would be another result of this kind of reform. So it's just another step in the pattern we've seen since the financial crisis, this move away from wholesale funding. This would just be another almost accelerant of that. Now, it is worth noting the timeline on these things because it's likely that the reform timeline will be quite long. I mean, that's how regulation works. And if we look at the 2016 experience with money market reform, we didn't see prime fund assets come out until the months leading up to the actual deadline. So maybe you're wondering, okay, why are you talking about this now? Even once they announce the reforms, it's going to be likely measured in years, not months before the actual deadline hits. And and, and that's true. I'm not arguing with that. But I do think Given the way things have been going thus far with prime funds here in the U.S. already winding down, this is already a trend taking place. When the reform measures are announced, I think we could see a quicker reaction this time than we did in 2016, both domestically and among some of the other financial market participants that will be hit by this regulation, offshore fund money funds, ultra-short bond funds, things of that nature. 
And then just quickly here, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but regulars are also taking a look at mutual funds as a whole, not just money market funds, but also ETFs and fixed income mutual funds. They may well be subject to the same types of stability measures that, that are being talked about for money market funds. In fact, in a speech last March, Governor Brainerd was talking about the topic of regulation, and she mentioned these other quote-unquote non-bank financial intermediaries as being a potential subject for regulation. So if you start to see capital buffers for mutual funds, things of that nature, that would, to me, likely be an impetus toward wider spreads. If you're going to have a lower-yielding part of the portfolio that's now invested in some ultra-safe component or you know, swing pricing or something like that that may ultimately affect your yield in a fixed income fund, it stands to reason that investors will demand more return from the bond portion of the portfolio, which is just you know mechanically wider spreads. The timing on this is all long-term. We're not going to see a jump wider in credit spreads here likely. But rather, regulation would be more of a weight on credit spreads in the medium and long term as these reform options play out. And we're just talking about it here today. So now why don't we move on to the second big piece of reform likely to come once Brandon or any other new vice chair is installed at the Fed. And that is an effort to increase the functioning of the treasury market. This one maybe has a bit less impact on the spread markets that we cover, but I think there still is an impact. So Dan, why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, so there's been a lot of discussion about the dysfunction in the Treasury market in March of 2020, mostly because of some of the similar dynamics that we've been talking about, specifically as investors demanded cash, they started to sell Treasuries, and it really overwhelmed some of the dealer capabilities to step in and intermediate. And there's been a lot of literature about this recently. Specifically, there was a report from the Interagency Working Group for Treasury Market Surveillance that consists of the Fed, Treasury, SEC, and CFTC. So basically, all the agencies that have a strong hand in regulation and in the Treasury market put together this piece, and they recommended a handful of reform options to deal with this dysfunction in the treasury market. So this report lays out three main components for regulation around the treasury market. First, there's the cash market for treasuries. Then we have repo and and treasury futures. And they laid out five different regulatory options that would enhance some of the market functioning in the treasury market. The couple that I think are most notable are, first, an expansion of central clearing. So They estimate that only 13% of cash treasuries are centrally cleared on both ends of the trade, whereas most futures are and repo market, you know, some are, some are not. So expanding central clearing, I think, would be a pretty significant step in the direction of reducing counterparty risk, adding some transparency, and alleviating some balance sheet costs via netting. Another one that they really harped on in this report was data availability in real time, both for the regulators in order for the Fed to have better insight into live data, and then just for the trading community in general. Yeah, thanks, Dan. So we're talking about more transparency for treasury trading, more central clearing. What's the bottom line on this stuff? It's going to increase the liquidity of treasury. So we're making the most liquid asset class in the world even more liquid. And I think that there are most likely limited repercussions for spreads here because treasuries already enjoy a rather large liquidity advantage over other types of investments in the fixed income space. But this will just go to further enhance that liquidity advantage. But maybe the reason why I wanted to talk about it so much here is because it dovetails nicely into the third major piece of reform, which is the SLR, something that was talked about a lot at the beginning of this year and has not been talked about much recently. And the question of whether or not we're actually going to get an SLR exemption, it's a fair question to be asked now that 
We've made it through all of 2021. QE is ending now. The influx of reserves into the financial system should be slowing and ultimately stopping. Maybe we don't need an SLR now. But I would just say an SLR, specifically in an ample reserve regime like we have right now, you could make the argument that an SLR is there to ensure a smooth functioning of the market. And we've seen the Fed deliver tools to ensure smooth functioning of the market even once the apparent period of their necessity has passed. Maybe the most recent example is the standing repo facility. That was announced in July of 2021 with RRP volumes you know, near a trillion dollars. Clearly, there was no apparent need for a standing repo facility when we have RRP volumes at a trillion. But we know that there was a time when the standing repo facility would have served a major market need, not just in March of 2020, but also looking back to September of 2019 when we saw the SOFR spike, a standing repo facility from the Fed would have made a lot of sense. They ultimately delivered it in July, and that's there now. And I think a similar logic applies to the SLR. We may not think we need one now, but I still think that regulators will go forward with one in case we do need one at some point. And so even though Brainerd, who's not really bank-friendly, may not love the SLR, I still think she will install it. And that whether it's branded or anybody else, I think an SLR will come. And talking about treasury market liquidity is, is a good way to view the necessity. We already know regulators want to increase liquidity in the treasury market, want to shore up the capacity for the treasury markets to stay strong even during times of stress. Well, one way to do that would be to give banks an exemption for treasuries and SLR calculations so they know they can add them to their balance sheet and not worry about leverage. So if we know that that's a goal for regulators, an SLR exemption makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree. And everything we hear from the regulators does talk about how an SLR modification of some sort would really alleviate some of the balance sheet stresses that have prevented intermediation in the treasury market recently. And I agree with your other point that it's going to be much more politically viable to install an SLR modification now than it was in the first quarter of this year when it was in the front page of popular press and people were talking about it and there were politicians going on about how this was a form of bailing out banks. It was very politically unpopular. and I think that's why the Fed at that time chose to punt on the SLR extension. But now that it's not as widely discussed, I think it could be fairly easy to slide it in there fairly undetected. And if we do get an SLR exemption, what's your view on impact? An SLR exemption would lead to wider swap spreads. We would have just an increased bid for treasuries, particularly from banks that would no longer have treasuries count in the denominator of their supplementary leverage ratio. We estimated back in March that that was going to allow holdings to increase by something in the realm of $200 billion in treasuries. So for very high quality spreads and swap spreads, I think you'd have you know this richening of treasuries lead to you know moderately wider spreads. It's going to be less of an impact further out the credit spectrum. Yeah, but it'd be both credit and swap spreads. And I think as we sort of wrap up the conversation on regulation here, that's sort of the primary takeaway is that this move towards increased regulation is likely to put upward pressure on both swap and credit spreads you know, in 2022 and beyond. It's not going to be anything significant. It's not going to be anything super rapid, but it would just be a sort of upward influence over the course of the year. And one of those things that feeds our expectation for just a wider trading plateau in 2022, that these all-time tight spread levels are going to have a hard time being justified given regulation and the other headwinds we talked about at the top of the show. Now, Dan, before we sign off here, I think we should at least spend a quick moment to discuss the market's likely reaction to a, what would be a surprise announcement of Brainerd as chair. How do you think spread markets would react if we got Brainerd? Well, I think broadly, you saw the market reaction on Tuesday of this week. 
where bond yields rallied and equities sold off as the perception of Brainerd's odds started to increase. So I think the perception of Brainerd is that she's going to be much more dovish than an already pretty dovish chair in Powell. So that would probably be, you know, I think maybe neutral for credit spreads, at least in the near term. It's hard to say you know, with much certainty how that's going to play out over a longer period of time. But I would say probably skews dovish for sure. Yeah. My knee jerk would be that you'd see a little bit of a, an initial risk on impulse coming from markets on the announcement of a brain or equities, I think would do well. Spreads might rally a little bit. It wouldn't do anything to change my longer term view. These drivers are still in place. So it would just be, for me, a potentially even stronger opportunity to take profits or, or reset into higher credit quality, lower beta asset classes until we get the widening event that we're looking for. Anything else, Dan? That'll do it. Everybody enjoy your sort of four-day weekend coming up here, and we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 